You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, we're going to get started because we have um, a lot of dense material to get through in Hebrews. And I wonder if you're reading ahead because we've stumbled upon a tricky bit to say the least. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 6. If you have a pew Bible in front of you or you have your own Bible, you can find that on page 1003. And I'm actually going to go beyond verse 11. We're going to go all the way to verse 20. Uh, but suffice it to say for the, for the time being, I'm just going to go up through 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who sake it, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles... It is worthless and near to being cursed and his end to be and, and the end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be so you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, that we might be able to discern um, the difficult parts of the Bible uh, that uh, we're so prone to just skate over. But Lord, that we might uh, wrestle with what you would have us to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week I kind of set us up for this, didn't I? Where I was saying that there are difficult parts of the Bible, but you really kind of have to get in there and deal with them and wrestle with them. And that was really to set us up for this week where we read in verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, etc., etc., and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Right? That's, that's a tough passage, isn't it? And so today we're going to sink down and uh, see what God might be saying to us. Because one of the things that we need to keep in mind at all times when we're reading the Bible, when we get to a difficult passage, the difficulty lies with us not with what God is trying to say. Uh, I was having a conversation with a rabbi once, and I noticed, and you probably have noticed it too, in the Old 
Testament, there's little footnotes that would say things like, the Hebrew was unclear. And I asked the rabbi, what do you do when you get to these bits where it says the Hebrew is unclear? He said, no, 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 they should say the translator is unclear as to what it means. The Hebrew actually is clear, they just don't know what to do with it. And so when we come to a difficult passage in the scripture, uh, the problem lies with us in making heads or tails of it, and we're going to talk about why that is later on. So how are we to handle passages like this in verses 4 through 6? So we're going to have a little bit of a Bible study and lay down some principles this morning as to how we deal with a passage like this. Now the principles that, that you can derive from Scripture as to how we, rightly how we rightly interpret and apply God's Word are these. These are some of the things that I keep in mind when I get to really any Bible passage, much less the hard ones. The first is simplicity. This is the first principle that I always bring to the table because the Bible brings it to the table. That is simplicity. What is it actually saying in its plain sense? Right, we, uh, if the Bible is God's revelation to us, it means that God is trying to be clear with us, right? It's not meant to be shrouded. Now, I do understand, as we read in 1 Corinthians this morning, where Paul talks about the mysteries of God, but the mysteries of God that he speaks of are not God trying to hide himself from anybody or anything, but he's talking about the mysteries that are veiled to those who are still in the flesh, who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And so when God intervenes in their lives, their eyes are open and they're actually able to behold Jesus as he is. What was once a mystery to them is no more. I mean, you may have had this experience the first time you heard the gospel. That's crazy. What, what do you mean? Well, God doesn't know my own background. How could he love me that much? Or, or why would God have to die for me? Because basically I'm a really good person. This makes no sense to me whatsoever. So to those people, it's a mystery, isn't it? And yet, God reveals himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ and declares that in his word. And so when we, the first thing that we look at is that we take the principle of simplicity and simply ask the question, what is the passage saying? What's the plain sense? Now, we can't leave it there, can we? Otherwise, we'd all be chopping off our hands and gouging out our eyes. Right, because that is the plain sense of what Jesus is saying. If your eye causes you uh, to sin, pluck it out. So the second is clarity. The principle of clarity. And that is we interpret the less clear by the more clear passages. Right, that there is uh, within uh, the Bible, when we get to a part that may be tricky and calls into question that which we think is the overarching narrative of the Bible, we need to figure out how to interpret this passage in light of the overarching narrative. What might be an example of that? I'm asking because I can't think of one right now. So it's, it's if, you, if you're drawing a blank. Um, I would say a lot of social issue passages, um, Jesus teaching on divorce, um, you know, it's, it's not just confined to the areas of the gospel in which Jesus 
teaches on marriage, but actually uh, extends uh, beyond that. Uh, it goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? Uh, and also what Paul has to say. Uh, so when it comes to those uh, types of things, we, we interpret it in the larger context. Or if you want to get real specific about marriage, what Paul says in Ephesians, especially using the language of submission concerning husbands and wives. And surely, if you just try to take the plain sense of it, and a lot of men especially have, have said, well, that means that it's time for you to get me a sandwich. Or when the wife is disagreeing, the husband says, well, your problem is you're not submitting to me. Well, does that, is that what Paul means? Not at all. Because what does it look... I mean, Paul actually says says what submission looks like in that passage, but nobody wants to look at that bit where he says that I want you to be as Christ is to his church, to the man, which is talking about servant leadership and that the husband ought to be willing to lay down his life for his wife and not just his physical life, but his hopes, his dreams, his ambitions, maybe even his career for the sake of his wife. Now all of a sudden, the man starts to squirm because it turns out that submission has higher implications for the man when you look at it through the overarching narrative of how Jesus modeled submission while also being who he is as God incarnate. So do you see what I'm saying is that rather than just taking the passage and working with it in isolation, what does the Bible have to say about it in an overarching way? So the principle of clarity. Next, the principle of consistency. And that is the conviction that the Scripture doesn't contradict itself. And this, of course, is based upon the character of God who cannot lie. If we really believe that the Bible is God's Word, when we do run up into parts that are difficult, whether they're difficult to interpret or whether we just don't like them, it's very easy to throw them away and say, well, God was wrong about that. Or God just kind of needs to get with the program. But the Bible doesn't leave us that option, does it? And so we have to say, okay, if it looks like two passages contradict one another. So if you were to read, let's just say, the epistle of James and Paul's epistle to the Galatians. You might run up into some areas where you think, this is contradictory to one another. But again, going back to looking at the wider view, but understanding, okay, but Scripture is consistent, so I'm going to have to wrestle with this and try to hear what God is saying to me. And then finally, the fourth principle is the principle of unity, and especially the unity of a particular book or passage. So as we engage with this, this is a particularly important for what we're talking about here, is that you know, if you're just meditating on a particular scripture verse or a small passage of scripture, you can easily miss what is meant by it. Because Paul is saying this difficult thing, and uh, Paul, the author of Hebrews is saying this difficult thing in Hebrews chapter 6 in the context of the letter to the Hebrews. And so we don't want to be minute, but have a wide grasp of what is being said. So what is the general thrust of what we're reading here in Hebrews? Going back to what we've talked about, this group of believers is a hard-pressed group that is in jeopardy of throwing away the Christian faith altogether. 
of simply walking away from it. There's social pressure from their family, because remember, they're Jewish believers in Jesus. And so there's a sense in which you've forsaken your Jewish roots. Uh, there's societal pressure who, you know, on the one hand, you're Jewish, which makes it difficult to live in the, in the Roman world, but then you're also Christian, and so it's like you're doubling up on yourself socially. Uh, and, then, and then finally, there's the issue of just general persecution uh, within the Medita Mediterranean world uh, for, uh, towards Christians. And so Paul is addressing this kind of group, and what is he doing all along the way? You could probably, there's an E word, two E words that he uses. Up to now, what has Paul been trying to do? right? Encourage to exhort. He uses phrases like go on, press on. He'll talk about running the race that is set before you. Right? He's encouraged them, press on. Or if you want to paraphrase it in the way that we did right out of the gate, we're going to heaven and we want you to come along with us too. We're going to heaven and we want you to come along with us too. And so we have to interpret what Paul is saying here in chapter 6 in light of that. So let's look at verse 6. Let's read it uh, 4 through 6 again. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared it in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Anybody want to take a stab? I'm teasing. Well, let's walk through it. Well, first off, who are these people? Who are the people that, that the author of Hebrews is talking about right now? He's not talking about necessarily the Hebrew Christians that are talking right now, right? That's, that's the general, that's who he's addressing to. But specifically these people who can never be restored to repentance. Well, he tells us five things about them in verses 4 and 5. In the first instance, they've once been enlightened. That is, the light of the gospel has dawned upon them in some sort of capacity. Right? They've been able to actually grasp who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Their eyes have been opened at some level to be able to say, this is who he is and this is what he's done. So their eyes and their hearts have been enlightened to that. And of course, Paul's writing to Jewish believers who would have understood enlightenment in terms of teaching. And so they, they would have thought of it as, these are people who through the teaching, which we just found out last week was deficient, but at some level they get the gospel. They understand it. I mean, I hate to say it, but this is, I think I have a leak in my cup. Um, this is uh, probably your experience in Birmingham. Well, it's not that leaky. Just get me a new cup. Uh, this is probably your experience in Birmingham, Alabama, where it seems like everybody's been churched to the extent that they know who Jesus is and what he's done. So just file that away for a minute. Okay, so they've once been enlightened. Two, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Now, what in the world does that mean? 
that they've tasted the heavenly gift. Well, one is to encounter Jesus Christ is an experience. And believe it or not, Craig, turn your mic off. Catherine, turn your mic off. Okay. So every week, every week. So Christianity is an experiential religion, which is actually a new understanding of Christianity or not, or understanding that had been lost for years. Uh, in medieval Christianity, it was experiential as much as it was a transaction between the priest and the people. But it was really during the Wesleyan revivals with Whitfield and others preaching where they talked about that you can actually have a life-changing experience with the Lord Jesus Christ where the Holy Spirit of God comes to live within you and to change you more and more into Christ-likeness. So when the Bible talks about God, it doesn't talk about him in the abstract as some sort of idea, but experientially. This is why the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So it's an experience, this tasting of the heavenly gift. But what is the heavenly gift? Well, I think uh, what the author is saying here is the blessing that came through the coming of Christ. That what we experience uh, through the coming of Christ is God's heavenly gift to us. And all the blessings that Jesus brings with him in his incarnation, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. But what does it actually mean to taste? I'm just going to keep pushing on. Because I don't think that what they're saying in the vestry is any more edifying than what I'm saying here. In fact, I'm hoping I drowned it out because who knows. Uh, I was convinced one time that the FCC was going to call Frank Limehouse for something he said over the radio because his mic was hot. But what does it mean uh, to taste? Well, John Owen, uh, the great uh, uh, vice chancellor of Oxford University and uh, Puritan writer, said that there is a difference between tasting and swallowing and digesting. I think that that's a very good distinction. And it seems here that the author of Hebrews is making that distinction, that it's very easy to taste something, but actually not to swallow and ingest it yourself. And so these people had, had tasted uh, the heavenly gift, that they had an experience. In fact, the third thing that we find out is that they shared in the Holy Spirit. Spirit that they were experiencing God's power. Now, do you have to be a believer to experience the Holy Spirit of God? No. I can remember when I was at the University of Virginia, something like a revival broke out uh, when I was there. And it was Tuesday nights, and it started out as a very small group with a guy with a guitar, and we brought our Bibles, and we'd sing a hymn, and then we'd read a little bit of Scripture, and then we'd pray, and then we'd sing a hymn as the Spirit led us. And it started out as a, as a dozen of us, and then we eventually moved it to the chapel at UVA next to the rotunda. And we ended up getting 500 plus because we had to turn people away at the doors. And at midnight, after starting at 8 p.m., campus police would come and say, you have to go home. And so we all thought that the best way to evangelize our friends was simply to bring them to this event. 
And one of my roommates, uh, Mark, uh, we brought along to this event, and he sat through all four hours of it, and afterwards we were walking out, and you could see Mark, who played uh, as an offensive lineman for the University of Virginia, this huge guy, was completely overwhelmed, and he had this look of, uh, well, just bewilderment uh, in his eyes. And I said, well, Mark, what did you think? And he said, I don't really know what to think, but that was awesome. Now, Mark never became a believer. Uh, And he didn't know how to articulate it, but what did he experience? Or rather, who did he experience when he was in that context? He had experienced... He had experienced and shared in the Holy Spirit. But we also find out that these people tasted the goodness of God's Word. And so those are people who might even leave church one day and say, wasn't that a glorious word? Wasn't that a great sermon? And finally we see that they tasted the powers of the age to come. That the kingdom of God had broken in. Now, um, What I want to say about that is we see what Jesus has to say about that in Romans chapter 7. Because it's you're able to taste and experience the kingdom of God here in this world and still be separated from from him. Chapter 7, verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7, sorry, 22. It is also Mark, uh, but Matthew 7, 22. I mean, isn't that something that is curious about the disciples themselves? When did the disciples know that it was Judas? Right, and even then there was some, after the dipping in the cup, after they found that it was Judas, did all the, uh, Tim Keller says it this way, after they found out that it was Judas, did they say, you know when he sent us two by two, he just didn't heal as many people as we did. I knew there was something deficient in him. No, all along Judas actually shared in the same gifts and abilities and powers that the other disciples did and yet was alienated from God. And the author of Hebrews says here that you can experience and taste the powers of this age to come and yet not know him. Now why is that? What has happened to them? Well, we find out in verse 6. And they have fallen away. They've fallen away. Now sometimes this is translated as apostasy, but I think falling away is a better way of saying this. So what does it mean to fall away? Well first, I want to ask the question, why is it to be in this situation impossible to restore the person to repentance? That's what we're asking, right? What state do you have to be in to not be able to be restored to repentance? What's a step too far? Well, to fall away, this is where they are right now, is they've openly and totally abandoned their profession of Christianity, publicly denounced the gospel, and have brought shame and disgrace upon the Lord. 
And this happens in the Bible. It happens in the last week of Jesus' life, doesn't it? When he comes into Jerusalem, what do they say? Come on, y'all are Episcopalians. You should know the liturgical calendar. What do you have in your hand? Palms, right. And you're saying what? Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. And then what happens by the end of the week? Crucify him. Well, that's falling away. Isn't it? And that's what's happened here. Is that there are those who have openly professed faith in Christ... And yet now they've renounced that, they've publicly denounced the gospel, and they've brought shame and disgrace upon the Lord. And the consequences are these. In verse 4 we're told that they cannot be brought to repentance. Now I read a lot of commentaries uh, leading up to this, and I think some people are trying to find an escape hatch that I'm not sure Hebrews leaves us. So I hear some people say, well... When they say, when the author of Hebrews says impossible, they mean it in the same way that Jesus meant it about the rich man entering into the kingdom of heaven or the way that the camel gets through the eye of an easel. Where the disciples said what? This is impossible. And then what's Jesus' response? But with God, all things are possible. So is the author of Hebrews saying, well, from a human perspective, it's impossible. But from a God perspective, it is possible to restore these people to repentance. Well, let's look at chapter 12, verse 17. Actually, let's start at 15. 1215, page 1009. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Well, the escape hatch just got closed, didn't it? Here in Hebrews. Because he talks about the impossibility of Esau being reconciled. In fact, if you look in verse 17 where it says, For he found no chance to repent, it would be better translated that he found no place to repent. He couldn't find himself at a place where he was actually able to repent. He'd been given many chances. He just could never find himself at a place where he could repent. And then the author of Hebrews, I am going to get some good news in, by the way. The the author of Hebrews continues, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Well, he slams the door shut now. And so if you're like me, You have a question hovering around in your heart right now. Are the people that Hebrews is talking about here in chapter 6, were they Christians? 
Were they born-again people? Well, there are two ways to look at this. One, it's easy to think that they are because of what is said and done by them. Uh, But what I think that the author of Hebrews is doing, as I've sort of been teaching along the way, is that what he's really trying to do is to impress upon us the solemnity of the warning to guard our hearts. Looking back, we see it time and time again. Um, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, He really wants to impress upon us uh, how serious this is. But then there are also two dangers, though, about this passage. The first is that we can come to it with a spirit of insensitivity. Because if that is the question, well, are these people true believers? And if we simply say insensitively, no, they're not, then we can completely disregard what has just been said, can't we? We can walk away from it, and we can even fall into the danger of saying, God isn't addressing me with his word in this manner. And that's a bad place to be. If we read a passage of scripture and say, well, that doesn't apply to me. We're in, a, uh, we're in a precarious place. But I find that fewer people approach it with insensitivity, but with the greater danger of being overly sensitive to it, and they can read this as believers and be driven to despair. I, I always, this is funny, uh, is... I, I mean, does everyone in here have the flu? I feel like everybody has the flu. And I kid you not, when you're recovering from the flu, I think that that is a place of spiritual depression. And they always end up reading Hebrews 6. So if you get the flu, don't read Hebrews 6. Don't don't do that. But we see a couple things. One, that the author of Hebrews is not addressing the subject of sin in the life of a Christian. Why do we know that? Because we go... To other parts of the Bible. So hear this from John's first letter. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And not only that, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. So in light of that, the author of Hebrews isn't talking about Christians who struggle with sin. Because God is all too ready to forgive us when we come to him. That you are forgiven in him, that you have been reconciled to him. And so the author is not addressing the subject of sin in our Christian lives, but nor is he addressing backsliding. Falling away is not backsliding. All of us in this room have experienced a spiritual wilderness at some point in our lives where it feels like God is very far away. And that even may be because of our own doing. But God offers us a healing word throughout the entirety of the Bible for backsliders. I mean, just go read the book. If you get the flu, read Hosea. What is the, what is the prophet Hosea talking about? God's love for backsliders. And not just backsliders, but what does God command Hosea to do? I want you to marry a prostitute named Gomer. I mean, the name is bad enough, but you want me to do what? 
who while married to him says what? I'm still going to continue to prostitute myself out. Now why did God ask Hosea to do that? Because God wanted to paint a very vivid picture, a literal picture to the people of Israel that Hosea's relationship to his wife Gomer was much like God's relationship to the people of Israel. And no matter how much they prostituted themselves out, what did God say? That's my bride. And even though she's unfaithful, I'm faithful to her. And so the author of Hebrews isn't saying that if you're backsliding, you're lost. Nor can it be saying that the child of God can be eternally lost. Because if that's true, then it's an assault on God himself. That if you've been born again, if you've been regenerate by the Holy Spirit of God, what does Jesus tell us in John chapter 10? I have them here, and who can pluck them out? No one. They're mine. I'm the gate. I'm the one that lies down between the sheep and the one who would come to destroy them. And so he's not saying that at all. But now look. Here, let's, we've got to close up here. Because then the author says this, beginning with verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the prophet promise. God said, I'm promising on my own name. It's my own name that's at stake that you will remain faithful. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and certain steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The anchor that the author of Hebrews is talking about is not like a sea anchor. It's like a grappling hook that a climber might use who tosses it up and it takes hold of something so that when you pull on the rope, what does it do? It holds you secure and gets you to the place that you're supposed to be going. That's the image that the author of Hebrews is saying. And talking about the promises of God and the steadfast love of God and the covenant love of God that he has for his people that can never be revoked. And the great links that he went to to seal that covenant by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which we'll get to eventually. And so who he's talking about are these people who are in the life of the church and seem to show some evidence of faith, but it turned out that they never belonged to them. This is what John writes. He says that they went out from us because why? They were never of us. They went out from us that they never were of us. And the evidence of the faith is Abraham, of clinging to the promises of God even in your darkest despair and in your darkest moment. It's Peter's prayer, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. That's faith, isn't it? That's trusting, relying, and depending 
on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's Hebrews 6. So when you get to the tricky passages, uh, do you see how we had to bounce around a bit? How we had to ask the hard questions? Write those questions down when you get to those hard bits and search the scriptures and see what God has to say. And so it doesn't mean that we take Hebrews and we just simply disregard it in an insensitive manner. But what it means is that we look at it and we say that we need to be on guard and we see a brother or sister who seems to be fading away. We ought to go to them and encourage them and say, hold on, stand fast, take hold of the rope that is anchored to God and I will help climb with you because we're going to heaven and I want you to go with me. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.